Good evening, one and all. Welcome. Good to have you here. If you're uh, visiting for the first time, it's great to have you as a visitor. You come once, you're a visitor. You come twice, you're family. So you're stuck with us from then on. Welcome to the How To Weekend. Tonight we'll be looking at how to discover your destiny from Exodus chapter 3 and 4. If you have a Bible, you want to make your way there. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and our service team will get you one. And then tomorrow I have three services. Pastor Rob is out of town. And so I'm going to be doing how to access the power of God in your life at 9 a.m., how to speak truth to power at 11 a.m., and how to diagnose heart problems at 1 o'clock. Now, I'm telling you all that. None of you are invited to the other services because we're full. So uh, you can tune in and check out the video feeds, if you will. But we want to look tonight at discovering your destiny. We look at a guy that is probably one of the most epic characters throughout history, Moses, or if you're Jewish, Moshe. And as we look at his life, we have to jump in at chapter 3 with a very brief background that brought us to this place. And that is, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and all the good that Joseph had done. Abraham had given, was given a prophecy by the Lord back in uh, Genesis chapter 15 that his descendants would go for four generations, basically 100 years per generation, down to a foreign land, the land of Egypt, and they would come out as a nation and go to the promised land of Canaan. Now that is a literally a 430-year sojourn, but much of that was in blessing because of all the good that Joseph had done. But as the time went by, those who don't remember history began to uh, oppress those who once were friends. And so the Pharaoh and the Egyptians began to be afraid because God was blessing the Israelites with such reproductive uh, growth that they thought, oh no, these people are going to outgrow us and take over our country, so we've got to oppress them. And through that oppression, one of the laws that the Pharaoh gave was to kill the male children. They could let the girls live, they could be servants because they're not going to be carrying swords in an army against the Egyptians, which their paranoia was driving them in all of this. And we know the story that ultimately the midwives would not obey Pharaoh. And so he changed the plan and he said, okay, I want everybody, if there's a male child uh, born, the midwives are not getting the job done, I want you to throw them into the River Nile. Now, the Nile, obviously, if you throw a baby in the Nile, they have lots of crocs, so it's like little uh, appetizers for the crocs. If you've ever been on the Nile River and going up on the Nile River uh, myself, there's nothing but hippos and crocs everywhere. It's quite frightening. I kept thinking to myself, I hope this boat doesn't leak because <laughs> these things look fierce. And Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, they saw that their child was a beautiful child. Now, every parent thinks their child's a beautiful child, right? Sometimes parents are so excited about their newborn, they go, look at my beautiful child. And I look at him. <laughs> but I don't have the specific parental affection that they do. And sometimes you're not sure what to say because sometimes they look half done. They're not quite done. <laughs> so you look at them and you want to be sweet. You're not sure what to say. So you just go, boy, that's a baby. That's really safe. <laughs> but it seems when they saw that he was a beautiful child, that there was something, they already had 
an older child in Aaron, and in Miriam. So this law was enforced after Miriam was born so that Moses was the only one that was in danger. She takes a basket. She daubs it with pitch so it's waterproof. She puts him in there. At least he'll float for a while before the crocs get him. And sends Mary, Miriam to hide and watch what happens. Pharaoh's daughter comes along the river. She sees, she hears the baby crying. She sends one of her maidens to get him. They they're bring him out of the water. They call him Moses because that means drawn from the water. And then he is raised in the daughter of Pharaoh's family and in the palace. It is said that Moses spent 40 years discovering he was somebody, the next 40 years discovering he was nobody, and the last 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Moses' life is very unusual in that he has three distinct 40-year increments of his life in which God was doing something. In this passage, it's chapter 3 and chapter 4, I think for time I'll have to skip some of the content that I have, but there's 12 things that stand out to me in the journey of self-discovery that Moses is going to discover his destiny that God had prepared him for. Let's stand and let's read in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read through verse 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate and give us understanding from the life of Moses, how you work in our own lives. Lord, I pray for those who have come tonight that are in the midst of this process of discovering all that you have for them as you have created them in a unique way, gifted them in a unique way, Lord, give them revelation in their own hearts and minds to be useful to you, your kingdom, and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The first thing we see is the divine preparation in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Moses is now 80 years old, and God has been preparing him. Talk about the divine preparation. No other servant in the scriptures is prepared as long as Moses to accomplish God's purposes. David is prepared from basically being about 15 years of age till he becomes king at 30. Joseph is 17 years of age, and he is, goes to hell and back to be prepared to be at Pharaoh's right hand at the age of 30. <laughs> Moses now takes 80 years of preparation. 
What's that mean? I'm not fully sure in the comprehension of it, but the first 40 years, he grew up in such an incredible way. Stephen tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And yet, as Paul tells each of us, and this is true for Moses and it's true for you, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, notice this, which God prepare beforehand that we should walk in them. God is preparing you for your destiny, which is to walk in that good work that God has for you. In loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, in the midst of all that, as a servant of God, God has a life mapped out for you. He has a blueprint mapped out for you. And your responsiveness to him and your understanding of this key basic principle There are three things that go into the preparation that God is doing in your life and my life. And that is, number one, he's showing you how weak you are through your own failure and struggles. Anybody learn that fully yet? Okay. Therefore, failure is highly underrated. Failure is one of the best things that can happen to you because as you fail in your own weakness and you finally go, you know what? I don't think I got anything to bring to the table. And the Lord goes, oh, now we're getting somewhere. My preparation is to show you and allow you to stumble, to fall. And Moses fell big time. Moses, at the age of 40, according to Stephen, thought the Israelites would know he was the deliverer. He saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, one of his brethren. And he went, and it says he looked to the right, and he looked to the left, and he struck and killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. There we go. Just killed one Egyptian. Right? Another few million to go (laughs) to deliver the children of Israel. But the next day, he sees two Israelites arguing. He goes, I'm the deliverer. I just killed a guy, buried him in the sand. You didn't know Moses was a murderer. And he goes to these two Israelites and he goes, hey, how come you're, you're you know, arguing with each other? How, how come you're striking each other? And the Israelites said, who made you the ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian yesterday? And he was, he's like, uh-oh. I looked to the right or the left. I didn't know anybody saw that. It's interesting, isn't it? We often look to the right or the left, but we just don't look up. <laughs> And so Moses knows now it's the death penalty for him. Having killed an Egyptian, he has to flee to the backside of the desert. He goes back there, and now he's been there for 40 years. And we fondly, fondly call this, in preaching terms, he have his, has his BSD degree. Now, you're familiar with a PhD. Well, a BSD is the backside of the desert degree. Right? And many of us are in that preparation process. I have my own journey in the backside of the desert of struggles and difficulties, but always bringing me to the place that I realize, apart from God, I can do nothing. And I thought I could do something. I really did. I, I thought, I'm bringing X, Y, and Z to the table. And the Lord goes, no, you're, you're just bringing your body to the table. And until you figure that out, we're not going to get anywhere. So once I discover in the preparation process my weakness, my failure, as Moses did, Moses could not bury one Egyptian in the sand and get away with it and deliver the children of Israel. When he walked in God's power, recognizing his weakness, he buried the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea in one battle. 
See the difference? You can't even bury one Egyptian in the sand, dude, by yourself. When you surrender your weakness and acknowledge that to me, and you acknowledge my great power, human weakness and divine power are the secret to transforming the world, to transforming your marriage, to transforming your community. Whatever it is, God plus your weakness equals power released into this world. With the vision in mind that we're going to see in a moment that the Lord is going to share with him. But in order to get Moses' attention, there's this burning bush. And in this uh, preparation process, he's now ready. God, God has now intervened. And, and Moses is ready from God's perspective. But Moses has been on the back burner, on the backside of the desert, watching sheep for so long. He wants nothing to do with God's program now. Isn't it funny? We either get way ahead of the Lord's timing, which Moses did by killing the Egyptian, or we lag way behind. Like the Lord said to David in Psalm 32, I don't want to have to put a bridle in your mouth because you get ahead of my will to slow you down. And I also don't want to put a bridle in your mouth like a donkey because you're so stubborn. He said, I just want to guide you with my eye. Well, Moses has been the horse that ran away ahead of God's will, and now he's the donkey. He's going to give five excuses why he doesn't want to be a part of whatever God has. He's had it. Maybe you feel that way. There's been failure. You're like, I'm content just to love Jesus, come in late to church, sit on the back row, throw a little bit in the offering, and just watch Fox News all day. That's my destiny. Right? That's, that's my future. Because I'm old. Now, I want you to know, if Moses' ministry started at 80, you got no excuse. And Jimmy's up here at 86, 87, right? The second row. Jimmy's just getting started. He's ready to roll. Just went to Israel. (laughs) So we have to have the divine intervention, though. You're not really prepared till you realize how weak you are and how strong God is. That's the most crucial understanding to have God prepare you for the destiny he has for you. But now we need the intervention. It's that moment, it's that burning bush moment where the Lord calls you off the bench or the preparation, so to speak. You're in the bullpen. You've been warming up for a long time to be used by God, and now you get the opportunity to pitch in the big game. In verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Now it says that Moses saw it. Now, it's not a strange thing that a bush would be burning in the desert, lightning storms, various things. But what was strange about this bush is it's, it's on fire, but it's not burned up quickly, you know. It's, it's just burning. It's just like a, basically like a candle. And he's like, what's up with that? It should be consumed very fast. And it says that he turns aside in verse 4. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, then God called to him. You see, God's looking to get Moses' attention. Moses, you're prepared. I've got you to the place that I want you. Now I want your attention. But sometimes as we discover our weakness and failure, we're, we're so content now that I can't really accomplish much. I can't change much. I'm just one person. What am I going to do, right? That God no longer is getting our attention. And so he brings a supernatural phenomenon to get Moses' understanding. And God doesn't speak to him until he gets his attention. And can I just share with you tonight, you might be ready for what God has for you. 
He just wants to get your attention right now. He wants to speak to your heart right now. Yes, you failed. Yes, there's years and water under the bridge of struggle and difficulties. Join the club. That's called being a human instrument for God. But he now gets his attention, and then once he gets his attention, he speaks to him, and he says, Moses, Moses. Now, anytime names are mentioned twice, it is to bring the powerful impact of urgency and importance. Urgency and importance. We see it happening with Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Simon, Simon. Satan wants to sift you as wheat. Martha, Martha. All these things are meant to get, and he grabs his attention and he goes, okay, here I am. Now he's okay with coming to a supernatural bush. He's okay with now something, a voice speaking. But I love this. It says in verse 2 that it was the angel of the Lord appeared to him. I want you to know that every time the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is mentioned, most Bible theologians believe that this is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord is a Christophany or a theophany. And so if you will, Moses right now is having a come to Jesus meeting as Jesus is speaking out of a burning bush in this Old Testament sense. Now, Jesus also meets with Moses on uh, Mount Hermon, as we see in Matthew chapter 17. Moses and Elijah meet with him. So it's not like they have never talked before, right? They're having this conversation in the burning bush. And this conversation is super important, not only to get his attention, to have him respond, to hear the voice of the Lord in a fresh way. Maybe it's been a long, 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 long time since he's heard the voice of the Lord. Maybe you feel like it's been a long time since God has broken in and really spoken to your heart. But it doesn't mean that God's forgotten about you. It doesn't mean that you're off the table as far as usefulness. God's got perfect timing. And for Moses, here he draws near and he tells him, Moses, this moment right here, this moment between you and I, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. There's nothing, you know, the sagebrush and the dirt and all that, that that's not what's holy. What's holy is this interaction between a powerful God and a weak human in that spot is holy ground. When you're meeting with the Lord and you're having devotions and you're crying in your front living room and nobody's at home, it's just you and Jesus, I want you, that moment's holy ground. You're meeting with your maker. You're meeting in dialogue with your king. And that's those moments that are so special when God ministers to you. Now, if his weakness, his preparedness, and now God is revealing himself to speak to his heart, now God wants to share with him the vision. Okay, I realize I'm weak and a failure. You're strong and you're awesome. What's the mission, right? What's the mission? What am I supposed to do? It's always the same <laughs> throughout the scriptures from beginning to end, pretty much. A powerful God and a weak human, God sees human need and he wants to minister to the people. The sheep are like, not, they don't, like sheep without a shepherd. So he says in verse 6, the divine observation from the Lord is sharing the vision with Moses. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows. Notice those words. The Lord says, I have seen the oppression of my people. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sorrows. 
God says, I hear, I see, I know Moses. And Moses came from that world and he saw it and he wanted to deliver them. Now 40 years has passed by. In verse 8, so I have come down to deliver them out. The Lord says, I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the flashlights, the termites, all the lights that are in the land. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So, Moses, you've seen what I see. Moses saw the taskmasters. Moses heard the cries of the people. Moses knew the anguish of the Israelites. And the Lord says, I want to bring them out of Egypt, this place of oppression and bondage, and I want to bring them into the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land of goodness for them. God not only has a plan to deliver us out of our oppression and our sin and our bondage, but he wants to bring us into something that's beautiful and good and wonderful. God calls us out of a life of sin and darkness into a life that is filled with the abundant life of love, joy, and peace, and goodness, and faithfulness. God has a call and a ministry, but the way that he gets that job done is through his people. And so he needs, he needs a minister to go do this. God chooses to work with weak human instruments, which I've told the Lord many, many times in my personal life, that's a bad plan, right? Why don't you send an angel? Angels will get the job done. <laughs> They're not weak. They don't have the kind of struggles we have. The Lord's like, no, I want to demonstrate my power through your weakness. <laughs> Throughout my life, the Lord in his preparation for me has brought me to the end of myself so that I, in a place of weakness, basically would want to quit. I've actually written resignation letters to God to quit. How do you quit when God's your boss, right? How do you do that? I wrote a letter, told the Lord all about it. And, but it was always bringing me to the end of myself. And through the years of the preparation and, and different times, when the Lord called me to go to a town, uh, Idaho Falls, where I was for 24 years, through a series of events, the Lord had called me to go there, and we were going to spend the night there, and then I was going to preach at this other church that's about 50 miles away for their three Sunday morning services. And my wife and I were going, uh, we had our kids, we're going to, um, actually I think we left the kids with the, the grandparents, and my wife and I, we came into town, and it was late, and it was this uh, comfort inn, and they, they weren't even finished. Like, they still had construction going on, and, and they had opened up a few rooms to get some revenue going. So I don't even know how many people were in the hotel. And I prayed. I'm like, Lord, we're going to be in Idaho Falls for these few days, and you have to show me, Lord, the need if you want me to come here and start a church. I'd already served at a couple of churches. This is the third uh, kind of experience of, uh, I guess it would have been the second church I'd planted, the fourth church I would have served at. And I just prayed before I went to bed, and I was going to get up in the morning and go preach these services. Well, I pray, I go to sleep, and about 2 in the morning, we hear the room next door. The door slam, and it's a guy and a girl, and they're so loud, you can hear their entire conversation at 2 in the morning. They've closed down the bar, they're totally ripped, and uh, they're yelling at one another about, you know, guys and other girls at the bar. And pretty soon I hear this, Bam, bam, and this guy just starts knocking the tar out of this girl in the room. 
And so it goes from just, I'm really annoyed and I'm awake to, oh no, this guy's beating up this girl. So I told my wife, call 911, I'm getting dressed. I'm going next door to get beat up. You know, so I'm getting my clothes on. And uh, it was the strangest thing because I don't know if these cops were like literally eat, drinking coffee down in the, uh, uh, the lobby or something. I mean, that's how close they were. She calls 911, I'm getting dressed. I open up and I, I go to the room and I'm just about ready to start pounding on the door so the guy will start, stop beating this lady. And, and the cops come, I mean, they come right into the hallway at the end of the stairs. And I'm like, man, you, dude, you guys are fast. <laughs> How'd that happen? And I was relieved because I thought, tomorrow's headlines will read, Pastor gets beat up, right? At Comfort Inn before, before church on Sunday morning. But I go back, and once your adrenaline's gone, you know, once you're, you're, it's, you're ready to bring it. Now I go back and I lay in bed and I cannot go to sleep, man. I'm just totally wide awake. And then in several hours now, I've got to go preach through services. And I'm laying there and I'm just, I'm in my mind, I'm just arguing with the Lord. I'm like, Lord, man, how am I going to preach? I'm going to be totally exhausted. I'm so wh-. And the Lord goes, you prayed before you went to sleep for me to show you the need for people's hearts here. I brought them right next door to you in an empty hotel, and now you're complaining about it. <laughs> I got it. Th- thanks, Lord. I'm a little thick. I'm a little slow. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Sometimes he has to point things out to me. So I went and preached the next uh, day, these three services, and I was so energized because I realized, you know, for me, in going to that community and having my burning bush moment for that community, God had to show me this heartbreaking situation of a man beating this woman in the next door. Sometimes you go in and out of families or stores or community or your workplace, and you have no idea how broken people are. You have no idea how difficult things are in people's lives. And the Lord is showing Moses what he sees, what he hears, and what he knows about heartbroken people. And for that reason, he has now prepared him for this divine destiny. He's now shown him the need, right? Your weakness, my strength, we can go help those people. So he asks now, the divine administration. Because obviously God can ask us to do whatever he wants. He's the king. But this is the first of Moses' five excuses. Verse 5. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people and the children of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this, this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Mount Horeb, also known as Sinai. He said, this very mountain, I'm going to send you all the way there. You're going to round up the Israelites. You're going to come all the way back here to this mountain, and I'm going to, get, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And you'll remember this day, as you see the burning bush on this mountain, I'm going to give you these Ten Commandments, and you're going to see the full loop of the fulfillment of what I have planned, your destiny. Moses' first excuse is real simply says, who am I that I should do this, right? It's an identity problem. Who am I? On one hand, I'm nothing, right? You're nothing. We realize that we are dust in the big scope of the universe that God has created. On the other hand, we are somebody, meaning that people either 
they either get consumed on one end or the other of this spectrum. I'm so insignificant, I can make no difference. That's not true. You're one person, you have one voice, you have a vote, you, you make a difference. You are significant as an individual. On the other hand, people think, I'm everything, right? It goes from, I'm insignificant, to I'm, no, well, you're surely not everything and a piece of sliced bread. You're, you're not that. And the truth is, both those things are, the reality is that I am significant, and through God's power and help, I can have an impact, a significant impact, to help other people, whether it's one person, or two people, or for nation, an entire, uh, <laughs> I mean, an entire nation, millions of people that he's going to bring out of Egypt on the longest camping trip in world history, 40 years, camping trip, and bring them into the promised land. Who am I? The first thing you have to discuss in discovering your destiny is knowing who you are and also knowing who you're not. You, God has prepared you uniquely for who you are. I'm not Rob McCoy. I'm not Micah Stevens. I'm not Pastor Chuck Smith. I'm not Greg Laurie. In my early years of ministry, I went through that thing. I would listen to great. As a young guy, it's only normal that you pick an older person that you admire to be your mentor right? You pick them and you be like Paul the Apostle said, follow me even as I follow Christ. So in those early days, you begin to follow and try to emulate the things that you like. But in the end, ultimately, I'm not Pastor Chuck Smith. And for those who don't know, I mean, if you go see the Jesus Revolution, it's an awesome movie. I was pretty concerned about it because Kelsey Grammer was going to play Pastor Chuck and I know Pastor Chuck and I just thought it was going to come off super cheesy, but it was very powerful. Um, but the, the reality is, I was frustrated one day in serving the Lord, and I was like, I'd been, you know, emulating Pastor Chuck, and then I loved Greg Laurie, so I was trying to emulate Greg Laurie, and I tried, and, and I just, and I was praying, I said, Lord, why am I so, fr so frustrated? And the Lord just spoke to my heart, I said, until you surrender to being you, you're not going to be fruitful. When you choose to be you, I'm going to help you be fruitful. And I said out loud to the Lord, I said, be me. Nobody wants to be me, not even me. Nobody wants to be me. Because in my identity, I, I was lost as far as an identity. Because you, you think, you, you know, I see something in someone else that I admire, but I can't be that person. I have to be me. You have to be you. And Moses is going to discover who his identity is, is in the Lord. My weakness in my relationship with God does something special and unique through who I am. And that's not prideful or arrogant. That's actually psychologically stabilizing and healthy. So Moses says, who am I? Right? And that's what people, when I ask people, and say, you know what? Hey, God wants to use you. Yeah, but who am I? That I know that you're nobody. <laughs> you're nobody special. But God knows your name. He's prepared you. He knows who you are. God loves you and wants to use you. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to play a game like you're somebody else. Moses' identity, he had to finally relax and be who God had made him. So first excuse, who am I? Tap, I'm out. <laughs> Go find somebody else. Second excuse, 
divine revelation. In verse 13, then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and say to, and say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me. Now that sounds more like a Dr. Seuss book. I am that I am. Just tell them I am sent me. <laughs> it's like, his first excuse is who am I? His second excuse is who are you? Who are you? If I go to the children of Israel, what, what am I going to say? What, what's your name? I don't even know your name. Now, the Lord says something unusual because you see, through the Old Testament and the covenant with the, the, the fathers, so to speak, he was Elohim, he was Adonai, he was El Shaddai. I mean, he was, he was these different names. But now he says this name that really means to be. It's a verb, which means to be or the becoming one or literally is. He, he's like, Moses, I am to you whatever you need. I am to you whatever you need. What do you need here tonight? Is God the one that you look to to be the source of that strength to be that, that comfort to be that? And he's telling them, he said, Moses, you just, you just tell them, the children of Israel, I'll take care of that, but go tell them, I am sent you. And then I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. They know that. They know that about me. Some people are so self-focused, they're wrapped up in them, who am I, that they don't make themselves available to God. Some people do not trust who God is to be what they need, so they don't serve God. Some people blame not serving God on themselves. Some people blame not serving God as, I don't know that I can trust him. I don't know if he'll be faithful. I, I don't know if I, I really surrender my life to God that he would, you know, help me out in the way that I need. And so the Lord <laughs> gives him the simple answer, but it's one that is difficult, right? Because he's got to wrap his mind around in this new season. He's all prepared and he has to embrace himself for who he is and who God for who he is. And then as we look to chapter four, verse one, we see the third excuse. And the third excuse, in verse one, then Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And he said, a rod. Suppose I do this thing for you. I, I, I finally say, okay, I'm going to accept. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is the need of the children of Israel. Let's just say, theoretically, I go and I tell the children of Israel, hey, I've shown up. God sent me to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, no, you guys are not youth group people. Anyway, it's a song. <laughs> but the thing is, is that suppose I do that and they don't believe me, right? They, they, they're going to think I'm, I'm from Mars. <laughs> the church that I used to go to, the, one of the, we have a list of stories of the funniest things ever, ever happened. On one Sunday, a guy walks into the back of the church, gets the attention of the church, so the congregation looks around at the back doors, and he's in a total, totally uh, all-blue leotard suit, and he's holding a globe, and he goes, Hello, I'm God. <laughs> he was serious. It wasn't a joke. He, 
was very delusional. And <laughs> Moses said, hey, what if I show up in Egypt and I say, God told me to get us all out of here, and they don't believe. Now, that's his fear, and, and it's the fear of other people not believing what God's called you to do, right? It's, it's one thing for you to come to grips with what God's called you to do, and God has confirmed that through who he is. But for them, what if they don't receive you, right? If they, what if they don't believe you? It's a fearful thing. And so the Lord says, what's that in your hand? He's like, it's a rod. It's a stick. It's, I mean, it's just a stick. It's a rod. And he goes, well, throw it down. And it becomes a serpent. And he goes, now pick it up. And he picks it up. He said, this is a sign I want to show you to show them. I'm going to give you three signs to prove to the children of Israel, if they question the veracity or the truthfulness of your claim, this stick is going to prove. You're going to throw it down. It's going to become a snake. You're going to pick it up. And we know when Moses ends up getting there, he throws down the stick. It becomes a serpent. The magicians throw down their sticks. They become snakes. But Moses' snake eats their snakes, swallows them all up. And then he says, now stick your hand in your bosom. So he sticks his hand in his bosom like this. He said, pull it out. It's white with leprosy. Now stick it back in. It's like it was before. He says, and lastly, if they don't believe the, the stick becoming a serpent, and they don't believe your hand turning into leprosy, then you're going to take some water and you're going to turn it into blood right in front of them. These are the three signs that I'm going to give you. So Moses has a question, right? That's a legit question. God gives him a legit answer. But if God answered all of your questions, are you now ready to serve him? Oftentimes people are only raising questions because they never intend on serving him. And Moses is not in yet. He gets these three cool signs. He says, uh, thank you, but no thank you. In verse 10 of chapter 4, we see the fourth excuse. And that is, then Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, and the seen, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall say. God has been so kind, so patient with Moses, and all of his excuses, Who am I? Who are you? What if they don't believe? And now he says, You know, I'm just not a good talker. It has been said that individual's greatest fear is to speak publicly, to speak. Now, you remember in class, I used to absolutely hate in class to be called upon to read, to speak, to do any of those things. And now the Lord's asking Moses to go to the, at that time, the most powerful nation in the known world, into the palace itself, and talk to Pharaoh that the Egyptians believed was God on earth and say, let my people go. Now, how boldly can you say that inarticulately? He goes, you know, I, I, I gotta, I'm not a good talker. And the Lord goes, okay, who made your mouth? This is really a creation issue. If God created me, he can help me speak. Some of us don't share our faith with others because, you know, I, I don't know that I have all the right words. You don't have, do, do you know what being a witness is? A witness simply tells 
another individual what they saw and what happened to them, right? If I'm there and I watched a, a car wreck and the police officer shows up, I don't have to be a good talker to say, this car ran the red light and hit that car. That's what happened. I was right here. I just have to share what happened. That's what a witness is. And God has already given Moses the message. He's given him the signs and wonders. He's declared he's going to be with his mouth. He's going to teach his mouth. He's going to show him how to do this. There is nothing that God will call you to do. There's, there's nothing that the Spirit of God leads you into that the grace of God will not help you in that experience. God doesn't lead you into something to watch you crash and burn. God leads you into something to empower you through trusting him in the process to accomplish his purposes. Paul the Apostle said that we are God's workmanship. That means it's poema in the Greek. It is God's, you are God's work of art. It's like a masterpiece. It's a, like a beautiful painting. It's you are God's work of art that he has prepared you beforehand to walk in the good works that he's prepared for you. Each one of you, now I think oftentimes we have this grandiose picture of what that means. It simply means to love God and love your neighbor every day and do those things that God lays on your heart in service. Just seeing the people in Egypt, their needs, basically a servant is someone that just meets needs. I see a need and I meet that need. I see a need and I meet that need. I see a need and I meet that need. It's not rocket science. It's not complex. And it's usually not this grandiose or this ginormous in the, the experience. So, after four, now, you would think that would solve it, right? I've made your mouth. I'm going to be with your mouth. You're going to get the job done. Four excuses why he can't serve God. Excuse, I shouldn't say can't. Four excuses why he refuses to serve God. The guy, when he was at 40, got ahead of God's will, now says, I want nothing to do with you. And your, you know, your, your whole thing, just leave me out. Isn't it interesting that when we step back away from usefulness to God, what an isolated experience we live in the wilderness. He's been in the desert for 40 years, been watching sheep. But as soon as you step forward for God's usefulness, he's going to be surrounded with community and people to love and to minister to. When you isolate yourself by saying, you know what, people have hurt me, this went wrong, this is bad, and we step into this place of self-protection, right? Because of our own failure and the failure of other people, we step into a place of self-protection and we don't let people in anymore because we've been hurt. Well, that's, <laughs> that's called humanity <laughs> and that's what's gonna happen to you and I. So you have to embrace and lean into that rather than run from it and rather than being isolated. Moses doesn't want to lean into it. Moses checked out. Moses is done. Now we know he lives for another 40 years, 44 decades. That's a long time to sit in your recliner, right, with a TV clicker in your hand. Day after day, seven days a week, for the next 40 years of your life without being useful. 
to me, that's much more scary and terrifying than being useful to God and being hurt in all the drama that surrounds that. So now here's the fifth excuse. It's not really an excuse. It's a straight-up, flat-out refusal to be used by God. Where it says in verse 13, But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Send somebody else. <laughs> and isn't that what we do? Like we might see needs. Oh, you know, this is a real need. I, I have people for years, people come in and they sit in church and they observe church. They never serve at church. They never make themselves available to God. But they come up to me after the service and say, you know what you guys need is this ministry and that ministry. And you need to do this and you need to do that. And I say, wow, that's an amazing insight that you see that need. And so why don't you let me know next week how that's going? And they go, wait. Now, I, I'm not going to do it. You're the pastor. I'm telling you. I said, I don't see that need. I, I see the need. I'm doing what I need to do. I'm, in the, I'm running in my lane. I'm, ma- I'm making myself available to do what God wants me to do. I'm not asking you to go study a message and preach on Sunday morning because that's not your lane. You see this need, and one or two things happen. They either... <laughs> Well, only one out of ten times do they actually step out and do it. Because they go through life as if they're the, uh, the director of traffic. Without getting their hands dirty, without laboring, without investing anything. But they have keen observation. But about one out of ten times they actually engage in that process. But the another nine out of ten times they stop bringing any observations to me, which is also healthy for me. Because I'm tired of hearing it when you want to do nothing. How is it that you can see a need, be motivated to even talk to other people about the need, and you personally do nothing? You personally do nothing. Did you get that the first two times? You personally do nothing. You say, send somebody else. Somebody else will do that. I don't want to do that. Somebody should do it. Maybe I could direct, tell somebody else to do it, but I'm not going to do it. Moses here just says, you know what? I've heard all your stuff about my identity. It's okay, my weakness, because of your strength, who you are, and what your name is. You gave me these signs and wonders that I can do with a stick, cool stick. And you said you'd even help my mouth, but send somebody else. Now, this is the first time. For, God's been very patient with Don't you think God's been patient with him? God's been very patient. Now the Lord gets ticked off. He gets angry. It says in verse 14, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It means to become white hot. <laughs> the Lord's patient. The Lord's kind. He's slow to anger, but Moses is pushing his patience right here. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs and wonders. 
We're no longer talking with this negotiation. This is what's happening. Your older brother, uh, Moses is 80. <laughs> they're young whippersnappers. And his older brother's Aaron. He's 83. And they're going to start their exciting new ministry. Aaron's going to show up. Aaron's a good talker. But the problem with Aaron is, is he does not have the character that Moses does. He might be able to speak better than Moses. But there's a reason God didn't go to Aaron directly first. Even now, he says, now I'm going to talk to you, Moses. Then you're going to talk to Aaron. And so it's almost like, you know, you're God and he's your prophet. And, and I'm going to help you both do this. But this is the way it's going to work. Because you see, it's Aaron when Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the children of Israel said, hey, where is Moses? We don't know what happened to him. They said, make us a god like the golden calf of Egypt. And so Aaron, because he doesn't have the backbone that Moses does, he's like, uh, a little bit of a people pleaser. He's like, okay. And so they heat up this pot and everybody starts throwing their, their gold earrings in and it begins to melt down. And then he takes it out and he fashions a golden calf. He is, he creates an idol for all of them to worship. And when Moses comes down the mountain, Moses is so torqued. He's got the Ten Commandment. You guys know the moment, Charlton Heston, right? He's got two tablets of stone. And he comes down and he throws them and breaks both Ten Commandments. It's been rightly said, Moses is the only one in human history that broke all Ten Commandments at one time. And when he comes to Aaron, he goes, Aaron, what is this you've done? You see, Aaron did not have the character developed in him through the preparation and the forging of the difficulties of Moses' life. There's a reason God called Moses. And he tells, this is the lamest excuse in all of the Bible. He says, Aaron, what have you done? He goes, well, Moses, we threw these earrings in the pot and this golden calf just jumped out all by itself. Am I talking to a five-year-old? Do you really think I'm going to believe? No, this is what he said. So the Lord is telling Moses, hey, I got to keep, I got to keep Aaron on a short leash. So he's going to help you. Him and Miriam both, they're going to help you out. They're your brother and sister. And so now that the Lord's angry, now that Moses, he's removed all of his excuses, now he finally capitulates. He finally surrenders. He finally gives up. He's like, Phew. all right. You ever get to that place that the Lord's been, you know, the Lord told Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go to that great city, Nineveh. I want you, I want you to go tell him about me. I want you to. Go tell him to repent. And Jonah runs from God. He doesn't want to do it. They don't have, there's not a long conversation like this. No, it's like, I'm running the other way. He goes down to the boat, down to the ocean. I mean, he's running from God's call on his life. And a lot of people do that. It's weird that, you know, I'm a preacher, and my dad did not raise me in the ways of the Lord. My dad went to church from the time he was a little kid, and at the age of five or six, giving his life to Christ as this, he sensed that God had a call on his life, and it so scared him as a little boy, he ran as hard away from God as he could so that he ra didn't raise any of us kids in the ways of the Lord, and he did not come back to the Lord until he was 35 years old. I had no idea that my dad even knew God. Absolutely. And the same thing with my mom. She grew up in church doing music and youth group. They didn't raise us in the church. They didn't raise us in the ways of the Lord because they just left serving God. So I grew up, I'm like, people would talk about Christians. I said, well, my folks don't know Jesus. What are you talking about? 
<laughs> but when I talked to my grandparents who raised them, I said, oh no, they were, grew up in the house of the Lord. They knew the Lord. The people run from God and they have all these wasted years and wasted relationships with families. And they've just run from God. And when you run from God, you can pursue your own selfish pursuits, but in the end, you always come up empty and look back in your rearview mirror filled with regrets. Like, I should have been walking with God. So Moses now finally surrenders. He finally surrenders, and we wouldn't know Moses for who he is unless he did. And now he's got to kind of set his house in order as it wraps it up in verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see wherever, whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to him, Moses, go in peace. He's got to take care of things with his father-in-law, his in-laws, you know. It's a little difficult. God calls you away from the family. In-laws usually don't like that. God called me to California. We have the rider truck all loaded up. I got my wife and my two kids, which are uh, obviously my wife's parents, grandchildren. And her mother, my mother-in-law, is standing in the driveway, tears streaming down her face. And she is begging me. I mean, to the last moment we drive out of the, Don't take my babies away California. Now, as a, as a son-in-law, I'm not sure what to do with that. God's called me to go do something. And, here, and she got so twerked at me. She's mad, she held a grudge for the next three years. It took her three years to forgive me for going and serving God and doing what God wanted me to do. Moses has to go home and, you know, get the blessing of the father-in-law. And then he's, he's got to have a little bit more comfort in verse 19. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go return to Egypt. For all the men who sought your life, they're dead. I know you might be afraid of that. You're no longer the most wanted poster in the post office. It's been 40 years. All those people are dead. And lastly, he's got to convince and bring the wife and two kids along. Now, this is a real challenge in verse 20. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. You see, it's one thing for God to call me, but you know what? Who's, inclu who's included in that calling? My wife and kids, right? They're all a part of that. And that's a challenge. When God called me in the ministry, and I wrestled with it for a couple of months, and I finally told my wife, God's called me to be a pastor, Neither one of us were raised in the church. She's like, you're crazy. You should be a pastor. I said, I know. That's what I've been telling God. <laughs> right? We were both on the same page for this whole thing. She knew who I was. She knew the bad Rick Brown, and then she knew the one that had become a Christian. And even with all that, man, it is a topsy-turvy thing. You're trying to serve God. You're in the spiritual warfare. Now you've got a wife and kids, and you're trying to love them, and you're trying to serve God. And, and that's why most ministers' families are not very healthy. And Moses is going to have a real problem. You see, the next chapter says, is he, or I mean, uh, yeah, in the next chapter, at the, the end of this chapter, he starts going, and the, the Lord withstood him to kill Moses. You say, wait a second. They just went through a long conversation to get him there. And the Lord said, no, the Lord was going to kill him because, you see, he didn't take care of his own household. His own two boys were not circumcised. So it, apparently he got so sick or struck by the Lord because you got to take care of your relationship with God and your family first before you go save the world. And so his wife had to go cut the two foreskins with a sharp piece of rock of the two boys. Ladies, are you, you up for that? After dinner, you're going to chop off your children's foreskins. She brings the foreskins to him and throws him at his feet, this legit, 
throws the foreskins at his feet and says, you are a husband of blood to me. Is this what it means to go serve God? Fly in foreskins and angry wives? Say, welcome to the ministry. It's going to be very exciting. Just because God's going to be with you doesn't mean the challenges are not ginormous in your family and the obstacles that are in front of you. But to discover your divine destiny is to realize your weakness, God's great strength, and the human needs that are around you for you to make yourself available for God's usefulness. And you will discover all that God has for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness. We pray that you would strengthen us to be useful. And Lord, I honestly, as humans, we uh, fall so far short of really yielding to the direction of your spirit. We just pray that tonight you would soften hearts, that you would lead our lives. And we just corporately, Lord, and individually just make ourselves available for you and say, Lord, however you want to use me, here am I. Here am I, send me, use me. Give me eyes to see what you see. Give me ears to hear what you hear. And give me direction in the simple things of life to love and serve those who are around me. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.